My name is Phil Gatto. And my name is Russ Kramer. And you're listening to Ingredient Insiders. This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be talking with chefs and food writers about their favorite ingredients. We then speak to the producer of that ingredient to learn how it's made, its history, and why chefs love using it in their kitchens. What are we even talking about today, Andrea? The prosciutto queen is talking about prosciutto today. Oh my gosh. Oh, how did I not even remember that? It's your signature food, the prosciutto. I know. And we've talked about prosciutto de Parma in past episodes. And this episode is going to be about American prosciutto, which is kind of like a new phenomenon, I would say, in the last decade or so. It is a phenomenon because when most people, or at least when I think of prosciutto, I do think of Italy, Mm -hmm. or I do even think of Spain with the jamones, Mm -hmm. which are these salt-cured, aged-for-a-long-time type of hams that are very European. But you're right. It's like just in the last, I don't know, what, 10 years that we have these hams that are produced in the U.S. that are prosciutto-style. Correct. Because the U.S. has produced ham for, I don't know, hundreds of years, you know, as long as there's been pig farmers producing pork and and curing the legs. But I think that there's a difference Mm -hmm. between the American-style hams and the so-called Italian-style prosciutto. Yeah, we were looking that up uh, together, John, that, you know, a lot of the the hams that we eat in the U.S. are country-style hams. So they're Mm -hmm. typically smoked. I mean, for the holidays, for me at least... When I think of Christmas dinner or, you know, other holidays, you know, a smoked honey baked ham is, you know, pure Americana. Right. So they're, th- those are c- literally cooked hams, either mm-hmm. using smoke or heat right. or steam or, or even boiling. But the prosciutto is a raw ham, theoretically, right? It's cured yep. with salt and then aged for a long time. So the salt actually does the job of cooking it with time. Correct. Um, How many people are making prosciutto in the United States? Any idea? There's not that many people that are are making prosciutto. I can think of maybe less than five that are doing it, you know, mass production. But, you know, there are uh, states like Iowa and Missouri, Mississippi that you know, there are a lot of pig farmers out there. And um, typically what I have noticed in the difference between American prosciutto and European style prosciuttos, um, the pigs are typically antibiotic free, hormone free. They, um, they're, it's not cured, you know, with any nitrates or, you know, anything of that nature. It's a really pure uh, tasting prosciutto. Um, it's also not aged as long as it is aged in Italy. So you're looking at an eight to 10 month cure versus up to 24 plus in Italy. So that's kind of what makes it a little bit different. So the gentlemen that we're going to be speaking with today are with a company called True Story. Yeah. And they're really making this American prosciutto. That's awesome. I'm really excited about this one. Absolutely. We're going to be speaking with Phil Gatto and Russ Kramer it's a really kind of symbiotic relationship. Russ Kramer is the farmer. He's, you know, he's producing the the hogs. And then 
Phil Gatto is purchasing the legs and he is curing them to make this delicious true story prosciutto. So I cannot wait to speak with him later. All right. Talking all about American prosciutto today on Ingredient Insiders. So excited, John. This season of Ingredient Insiders is brought to you by Bazzini Nuts. Bazzini is the brand of choice among chefs in the finest hotels and restaurants. Their legacy of quality extends to gourmet retail stores, specialty boutiques, grocery distributors, and delis, ensuring you have access to their extensive range of consumer retail packages. It all started in 1886 when Italian immigrant Anthony L. Bazzini began selling nuts by the pound to bakers, street vendors, and individuals during the Great Depression. But Bazzini Nuts isn't just about peanuts. They offer a delightful array of nuts like cashews, almonds, pecans, pistachios, hazelnuts, and more. Plus, a tempting selection of dried fruit, including apricots, cranberries, figs, dates, prunes, and tomatoes. So whether at the ballpark, in the kitchen, or indulging in some well-deserved self-care, choose Bazzini Nuts. With a legacy spanning 137 years, they're here to serve your needs with the same consistency, reliability, and quality, making them an iconic name in the world of nuts and dried fruits. Bazzini Nuts, tradition, quality, and taste all in one. Taste the legacy today. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios in New York City. So today's a really exciting day. We are at Pier 17 on the South Street Seaport here. I mean, the view is amazing. And we are with two extremely special guests and kind of near and dear to my heart. We are with Russ Kramer and Phil Gatto from True Story, which is an American prosciutto uh, you know, company. And what I think is really cool about this conversation that we haven't really done before is we're talking to, you know, the farmer, the hog farmer who then, you know, passes it to Phil, who is the prosciutto maker. And then, you know, at Chef's Warehouse, we sell this amazing product. It's kind of full circle. So thank you for being here. We're happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us. So I guess we'll start with you because we'll start with the hog itself, Russ. So tell us a little bit. I mean, I like for me, like I told you yesterday when we were chatting your story is something that has stuck with me my entire sales career at Chef's Warehouse. But I want you to kind of share how you got here. You know, you grew up kind of as a farmer, right? Mm -hmm. So tell yes. us a little bit about that. Yes. Well, thank you for letting me share this. And and by the way, I, I meant when I said you were the probably the best student I ever oh. had in, in, as far as <laughs> thank you. pig husbandry. But anyway, so, so I was... Um, Born and raised in a little town called Frankenstein, Missouri. Which Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Missouri. Missouri. The only other name, the only other town by that name is in Germany, and that's the town that inspired Mary Shelley. So we have a connection there. So anyway, I'm proud of this little town uh, community that I was was born and raised. Um, Osage County, Missouri. It's in the it's in the foothills of the Ozarks. So just south of the Missouri River starts the the rolling hills, beautiful scenic. Uh, isolated farming, um, good farms, fifth generation. So that's the typical farm in our area. And so I was fortunate to have grown up with, uh, there were seven of us in our family and my mom and dad who uh, I was raised on a 220 acre farm. And at an early age, uh, my dad, he says, you know, tongue in cheek that, you know, you can blame him for 
taken me out to the hog barn whenever I was one year old, and I just fell instantly in love with pigs. Sometimes I think I was actually raised by them. <laughs> and, uh, and soon thereafter, by the time I was three, I actually had my first job on the pig farm, and that job was to care for the runt and orphan pigs. You know, when you have large litters, we don't want to let them die. Sure. We, we take them into the house. And so uh, we had a wood, a wood furnace, and I'd take them down, and I'd take the chill out of them, and I'd hand bottle them and, and raise them up until they were ready to go back to their mother's. And, uh, and then when I was eight years old, my dad gave me my, the first sow, my first gilf, actually. She had never had pigs and what a thrill that was very special. And in fact, that first one, first sow, she had 15 pigs and only 12 dinner plates. So I actually stayed with that sow and litter litter for three weeks right there in the nest to rotate the pigs so that they all got their nourishment. And I saved every one of them. Wow. So uh, I, I always mean when I say that the more care and responsibility you put into livestock or farming projects, the more, more you get out of it. So I grew up as a, in a, in a sustainable farming operation. My dad, uh, uh, my, my grandfather, uh, you know, he was considered the, the, the best and actually the, the biggest farmer, although he only had eight sows. That amounted to about, you know, about 150 pigs per year. Mm-hmm. And he'd, he'd send them to St. Louis. And my dad uh, learned from him and I learned from my dad. But it was always about, about caring for things. It was not about scale. It was about, you know, caring, being good stewards of what you had. Uh, our farm was actually considered small, 220 acres. Uh, the most sows that my dad ever had when he was, you know, starting his family was 30 sows, 30 cows, a group of chickens, a big garden, and seven kids. That's what he raised. Uh, full-time farmer, never had an all-farm job, made money every single year. My m- mother had the luxury, I should say the luxury, but she stayed home to support my dad through homemaking and mm-hmm. on the farm and, and, and bookkeeping and things like that. And so that's how I grew up. I tell people that my, you know, my childhood, growing up in that community at that particular era, uh, was the greatest of times. Uh, primarily because I, I learned all these things and, and we were probably poor, but I never knew it. And, uh, we, 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 we made rich it just on love. Fun. Exactly. Rich on love. Yeah. And a really important, love. important <laughs> aspect of things was the fact that because we, we made money, there was, you know, farmers that actually could make money if they, they worked hard and, and they, they in turn reinvested into main street, Frankenstein, Missouri, and they bought things. And I learned at an early age what it took to sustain a rural economy. So anyway, fast forward to my, my, my education then, you know, so I always had swine on the mind and that's all I ever wanted to do in my life. That was my purpose and graduated from high school and was taught my class, whether that's a big deal or not. But anyway, my dad told me, you can, son, you can do anything you want. You don't have to come back to this farm. You don't have to raise pigs, you know, go off to the big city and do something else. And so no, that's, that's, that's what I want to do. So when I left for college at the University of Missouri in Columbia, that's, that's, that was my goal. My goal was to learn everything I could and every aspect there was to be the best pig farmer I possibly could and bring that knowledge back home to the family farm. So I graduated. In fact, I made a deal with my dad that I'd even get out in, in three and a half years rather than the typical four plus. And so I got, got out early, couldn't wait to get started. Uh, but what kind of like stared us straight in the face was the fact that that small farm couldn't provide two incomes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, you know, I examined and, 
and you got gotta know that back in back then even though i went to school farmers such as myself got most of our education and and timely knowledge from allied industry you know in other words the feed company the seed company mm-hmm. the, the the pharmaceutical company uh the swine genetics company the equipment businesses or whatnot because you know it was they did a lot of research and instantly you could get that and oh by the way they they present, presented that information with hopes that they'd sell you something. So they would come around to the farm and like give their pitch and like try and teach you about the feed and the equipment that you should be using and things like that. Absolutely, Got and, it. and they had they had the up to date information where you know say a, a land grant institution mm-hmm. it often takes fifteen to twenty years for that information to disseminate. Got so, it. So it's behind the times. Then. So that's what we did, and you know I'm not saying that that is an excuse, but that's where I gleaned my knowledge. And so there's there's two things I always tell. I say that every day I vow to be a better person I was the day before, but I also admit that some days I fail miserably. I felt I I failed miserably in a couple of aspects when I came back to the farm. Number one was to convince my dad that the fastest way and the quickest way that we could get up to two incomes was by um, by by building a, a facility that actually could accommodate more pigs mm-hmm. in a confinement type situation. Before we were using bedding and allowing our pigs to go outside and freedom you know but but you know back in the in the 80s that's when consolidation concentration and vertical integration really took a shot you know forward Mm -hmm. and so that's what we were going through and so the industry was going through changes and modern confinement slatted buildings mechanically ventilated you know manure systems underneath that was the trend and it was it seemed appealing to me because we could get our numbers to a point where you know we could we could survive and so we did that that was a mistake where i failed and and i blame myself not anybody else mm-hmm. the second mistake that was made was that bought into this feed additive concept that the pharmaceutical companies were basically pitching and it it wasn't sold I'm talking about a feed additive that you would put in every ton of feed to with the promise that the pigs would grow faster, would be more efficient, uh, would have you know more survivability. But then the bottom line, you know, you're going to make, you know, five to 10 percent more profit. It was very appealing. And, you know, it, it kind of pitched it even that when you fed this additive that it would actually even make the pigs healthier. That's what the, you know, that's what, how it was implied. But the fact of the matter is these were antibiotics. Yep. And not just antibiotics, but they were human important antibiotics such as penicillin you know tetracyclines things like that um but we we fed that fed that in these low dosages and, and nobody nobody you didn't ever never heard the term superbugs or what right. this possibly could do so uh, so they were painting this picture that what you were doing was good and that you were feeding them something that was going to you know be good for the pigs and then also good for your pocket Absolutely. Yeah. And both, both are, you know, hey, those are a couple of the legs of sustainable farming. Mm-hmm. You know, it's economically it made, made, yeah. made sense, environmental. You know, it, it all made sense. And, you but know. you learned the hard way that that wasn't true. Yeah, I learned the hard way. So anyway, just, you know, within a year after we put the building up, within a year after we really, you know, adopted this practice of feeding the antibodies, it culminated. Um, first of all, we st- I started seeing the effects of of sick pigs. You should not have six pig, pigs, but I'd go into that new building and every day I'd have to inject my pigs with a injectable, with a therapeutic 
type of antibiotic to get them over this illness. And I'd have to do that twice a day, probably would treat 75% of the pigs. It was a sickening moment for me and demoralizing because you know, I love pigs and why were they sick? So that happened. And it culminated on a, a, a March, a spring day in 1989 when I was driving a, a boar hog, a male pig, uh, to a group of females that were that needed to be bred, and that boar was kind of hostile, and he turned around, and his tusk landed in the bottom of my knee, and and he, he gored me, and I didn't think anything of it. Basically, poured out the blood out of my boot and carried on, and never thought anything. About a week later, my my leg was starting to hurt and swollen about fifty percent greater than what the size normally would be. And so I, then I treated medical attention and went to a doctor who said, no big deal. You probably got a strep or a staph infection. Sure. And I'll give you a dose of penicillin and that will cure it. And so not only did the penicillin not treat it, but seven other antibiotics that they tried to no avail. My, my condition kept getting worse until I got septic. And uh, I felt it racing through my heart and through my bloodstream. And so finally the doctor said, I can't do it. I don't know what to do. I said, I'm, I'm, you're, you're <laughs> it, it you better come up with something. It doesn't look good. So I went home and, and I had, uh, while I was <laughs> grieving or fearing for my life, I had an aha moment thinking that, you know, I had something similar happen to my pigs. And I remember getting in, a, you know, having my pigs examined through serology where they actually paired the uh, the antibiotic, different antibiotics against this certain pathogen. Mm -hmm. The pathogen was strep suis, which was a, a strain of uh, strep. And they and I looked through those reports and the first eight of the antibiotics were resistant to it. And finally, there's one at the end. Oh, by the way, here's one that's re, that's sensitive to it. Mm -hmm. In other words, that could actually maybe cure it. So I pointed that out to my doctor saying that this is this drug is in the cephalosporin family. Uh, and, and oh, by the way, uh, I think that you should treat me with that. <laughs> Put me in the hospital, gave me an IV solution, and it and it and it cured me. Yeah. I, I saved my own life, so I'm very thankful for that. But that really was like a a, a kind of a like obviously, you know, when you're faced with you know potential death, it's it's scary. But it kind of like you walked out of that hospital and you changed the way that you think about farming. A absolutely. While I was in the hospital. While I was on my recovering bed, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I first of all, I went through this this feeling of remorse because I I, I realized that I created this superbug sure. that basically feeding a, a subtherapeutic level of antibiotics constantly that it was killing off the weak ones, the strong ones were propagating and mutating, and mm -hmm. first thing you know, there was a, a drug that no, nothing, no drug would cure. Yeah, and so I was remorseful about it. I was selling breeding stock to other neighbors, for instance, and I spread the disease that way. I thought maybe could it have made other people deathly sick. And so I was going to quit farming. I was going to quit. I said, I shame on me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my friends talked me out of, you know, made me realize that this was my purpose in life. And they said that Russ, instead of quitting, you should come up with a solution. So I plotted a new course and that new course had to be, we're, we're going to figure out a way and teach people how to raise pigs without antibiotics. And so I realized you had to have clean ground. So I went to my, I had, I had just purchased my great aunt's farm and it was a secluded place, uh, very wooded. Most people didn't want it because it had too many woods and rocks mm -hmm. and trees on it. So I went there. Um, I, I clean, I exterminated my, my, my dirty herd and I got clean stock. 
I, I embryo transferred some uh, genetics that I, I pinpointed that were healthy and they thrived. They were happy pigs that resisted this kind of thing. And I, I implanted that stock into there. I, I had a new feeding regimen. I was only going to feed the, you know, the, the whole natural grains, uh, you know, the, the, you know, non-GMO and give them, give them access to forages and the new facilities that I, I built were going to have all access to the outdoors. I can rotate the pastures in the woods and things like that. And then finally, probably most importantly, I said, I'm going to kick the drug habit. Yep. And so I can tell you today by implementing all those things, even though I had lots of skeptics that after 35 plus years that I'm drug free. My kids <laughs> are drug free. <laughs> and I think Phil is probably happy that you didn't quit and that you kept going because now Phil at True Story is making some of the best prosciutto I've ever had. Um but I know that your kind of lineage goes way back, you know, further than True Story, right? You like kind of grew up since you were 10 years old in the charcuterie business? Yeah. 1957, I was 10. My father and uncle bought a, went from bartenders to my grandfather's small little bar in downtown San Francisco and decided to buy a salami factory. I was 10, tagging along with my dad and go, I think he's cool. So it's cool for him. He should cool be cool for, for me. So. He loved it. My uncle loved it. And away we went. Uh, kind of fast forward a little bit. When we were kids, small families, uh, my father and uncle both mentored me and the rest of the family. But two guiding principles every week was people and quality. So take care of people and no compromise on quality. Well, then you fast forward. I didn't just thinking about it now, Russ. It was 89. That's about the time that Whole Foods started to expand. Mm hmm and Whole Foods was there. They want a more natural product. They were making sure that the animals were only given therapeutic drugs and taken out of the herd versus subtherapeutic. I think that's a big part of what you're saying, Russ. We went to subtherapeutics, and you got the medicine whether you need it or not. So there was a there was a real line of definition change with Whole Foods. About that time there, I'd grown up in a salami business. And to kind of see where we are today, back in North Beach for the Italians that came to San Francisco, you know, they brought a Milano-style salami with mold, mm -hmm. you know, European-style sourdough bread, you know, grapes that came. So we were in the food business, and you tried to match things together. Well, around that time of doing the Whole Foods, we said, hey, let's see if we can't increase the quality and really shoot as a target to develop products for Whole Foods. Yeah. At that point there, it was like I was talking to a friend, and they said, hey, there's a couple guys in the Midwest. There's a guy, Russ Kramer. Mm -hmm. So this city kid ends up, you know, I got to track it back to the source, and I end up in Missouri with Russ. So that was in what year? That was in 2007. 2007. 2007. Wow. 2007. Okay. So Russ had churned things around. Mm -hmm. We saw the avenue to make better products. The products we were making... At that time, we wanted to have the best artisan products. Mm -hmm. You had farm to fork, farm to table. So we're going to go make salami or prosciutto. Let's go get the very best meat. Yeah. The ideal part of that was you had to buy the whole carcass. So then we had to utilize the whole animal. But Russ and I drove around for almost maybe three years yeah. <laughs> as we were developing True Story. Big road trip. And uh, got to know each other, I think. Uh, I and a bunch of partners came together, and we said, hey, this is our avenue. So True Story is a natural and organic meats. 
uh, and we went back to Russ. I think, I think the things we're, we're really proud of is we've got generations behind us. Mm-hmm. And when you look at people and quality, quality isn't always that much more expensive. So when we went back there, I was riding with Russ, and we we're trying to figure out, Russ, you're raising these pigs. Ideally, we should buy the whole pig and further process it. So how do we make that work? And so we're driving around, uh, let's see, let's put our minds together. And so we're, we're, we're proud, a true story, that most of our products that we purchase, we're going to call it a true story fair trade, which means we contract almost all the animals that we contract with for further processing. We once a year go through a pricing model mm-hmm. that Russ and a group of people connected to the farmers upgrade, update. Mm-hmm. And 65 or 70% of the hog is corn and soy. And so this time of the year, in fact, it was last Thursday, we fixed the price f- for the coming year. Okay. So the farmers have a predictable so pricing model. So they know model. and they can like count on that business. Yeah, I think we're one of the very few yeah. is going to say, it may not always be the price you want, but yep. it should cover your cost plus a profit. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the city kid Simple went to the that. country kid. And then we start to build this community, which means you got to go back to the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Then you got to have somebody like ourselves, the further processors. And then we need Chef's Warehouse, which is great here today. Yeah. <laughs> showing the products. And we, the people we show those products today connected to consumers. So, I mean, right. there's this community. Absolutely. That brings everybody together. That's why I was so excited to talk with both of you to like kind of like talk about the this like circle of life, if you will, that's that's happening between all of our companies and like even like learning that you're taking it back to the farmer, making that commitment, investing, you know, ahead of time to say, like, I'm going to take X amount of product like that's not really done very often. So, I mean, hats off to you for you know, doing that. And I think when people hear that, they're going to want to invest in buying True Story. They like to understand it. Yeah. And curious, we have a name, True Story, that was, we went through all kinds of mm-hmm. names. And yeah, I was going to ask you, where did that come from? Well, we'd, we were looking for names. And mm-hmm. then one of my buddies, our partner says, coincidentally, somehow years before that had registered True Story and we could use it. So we said, hey, this is, per- what greater platform do we have yeah. than to tell our story? The road isn't perfect, but at least our intent is there. Sure. And uh, people are starting to recognize it. I think for, I mean, the, the booth upstairs is very busy. So I think definitely people are, are recognizing the quality. When they say quality, let's go back to Russ for a second, I think. And I feed and breed. You want to talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, so for the, for the prosciutto, what is the breed of hog? Well... And Phil and I talking, you know, I told Phil that I actually went over to, to, to Europe in first time in 1999, mm-hmm. basically to, to see what they were doing uh, you know, in, in marketing. I learned all this whole thing about relationship marketing where consumers were connected to the farmers. And I ended up in, in Parma region. And, I, you know, as, as the farmer, I realized it, it starts on the farm. Mm-hmm. It starts with, uh, you know, uh, what I learned and what what I've coined in my mind anyway was for for true good artisan heirloom pork, you you got to have you got to focus on the breed, the feed, and the need for tender loving care. That's how I remember that all the time. The breed, the feed, the need for tender loving care. I love yeah. that. 
It is. I mean, it makes a difference. Right. It, 100%. There's not, not one secret. It's, it's all of that. Uh, the, 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 the breed, you know, we don't, you know, I, I was a, I, I was, I was a, I'm a, a trained geneticist, mm-hmm. and, you know, and call animal, animal breeding or whatnot. Back in the day, by the way, my degree was in animal husbandry. That kind of, you know, back, back, that means basically teaching you how to care, you know, sure. daily and, and tend to the needs of the pig. Um, so, but what I, I learned is in, in through my experience in the last 40 years that, that a, a blend of, of heirloom breeds and lions is what makes the ideal quality. For one thing, when you, when you combine those different breeds, and so we use Durox, we use Berkshire, we have some, some of our farms have, have Tamworth, which is an old line of pigs, mm-hmm. um, that were selected, you know, you know, not necessarily for meat quality, but for vitality and, and vigor and, and ease of movement. And in turn, that made the most impeccable quality, you know, and so we were rewarded by, by that. So, so that's on the, on the genetic side or the breeding side, we use that blend of heirloom on the feed side. We make absolutely sure. Number one, that we don't feed the garbage. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, uh, I have meat science training too. And I've learned that you can alter the composition of the fat. If you want good quality fats, you feed good quality food feed that excludes things such as, you know, bakery products or the dried distiller grains. That's a byproduct of the ethanol plant that contains these large amounts of polyunsaturated fats that in turn, you know, make poor quality pork and pork that can go rancid, for instance. And so how right important now, is that with that's what ham? commodity hogs are eating? Yeah, that's a, that's a typical diet. A typical diet is a lot of dried distiller grains because wow. you know, now we turn our corn into fuel. But what do you do with this byproduct? Yeah. So the pig thing, it's, it's loaded with these, these, these bad fats. And, you know, not, and that's, that's just what it is. We, we go out of our way to make sure that our rations and we, you know, we have high standards and we inspect those standards. We have, you know, we have audits to ensure that these standards are in place. And so we, we, we feed what is good. And then, of course, no antibiotics. You know, if a pig has to be treated therapeutically, that goes into a, a different system. But, but no antibiotics. I mean, we teach our farmers, you know, how to, you know, what are some of the alternatives? How to keep pigs healthy so you never need them. And then, of course, the, the need for tender, loving care. I mean, that's my favorite because, you know, I'm a, I'm a pig whisperer. Yes. And, you know, and our farmers take that very seriously. They're proud of that. And they found that, you know, when you do provide all that care and attention and our farmers, I think one of the great aspects of our model, Phil, is that our farmers own the pigs. Our company doesn't. We, How many farmers are in? Is it a co-op? It's it's a it's a network of farmers. Okay. It's it's, it's not it's not uh, officially a co-op, but it's a network of farmers that you know we have a close relationship with and have the same passion and goals. Uh, but we're we have about a hundred and twenty-five farmers, I believe, Phil now, and uh, so and they're all shapes and sizes, um, but they have one thing in common: a passion to, to treat animals with respect. And so that's what we do. And, and in, in turn, they're rewarded because they, they produce better and mm-hmm. we're rewarded. Phil's rewarded because he's got a, a better product to start with. It's interesting when we talk about the prosciutto. Yeah. It's just one piece of meat. Okay. It's, it's not flavored. All we do is put it down in salt. Mm-hmm. And I think when even at the show today, people were going, wow. And we take the feed and breed. And you taste the prosciutto, it's always got a nice fat cover, but the fat is sweet. Yes. 
and you hear people go, ooh, there's something different. Mm-hmm. It's the sweetness of the fat. Yes. As yes. simple as that is. Mm-hmm. But you just have a very large piece of meat that's mildly, it's not even seasoned. We just salt it and then cure it. It's pork, salt, and air. That's it. That's exactly. literally the, the recipe for prosciutto. So you better have the, right, the best ingredient. Right. And if you don't have it, it could be good, but it's not going to be great. Yeah. So. I mean, and the, the pork itself is even sweet. The marbling is there. You know, I've, you know, I'm call myself the, the prosciutto queen, as, you know, everyone knows. Um, so I, I've eaten quite a bit of prosciutto and you see it in the slices. You can see the marbling of the pork. You can see that beautiful, white, delicious fat that you're talking about. I mean, it's, it's like no other. Even when you look at the fat, is when you take that leg and we get ready to slice it, the fat is firm. It's mm-hmm. not soft. Yep. So when you go back to Parma, they like a nice, hard fat on the outside. and So by the breed and feed and the farmers and processors and mm-hmm. distributors and consumers, it's and I think it's getting more traction. Absolutely. I think even at your show today, you're, you're, look, you're, you're saying downstairs that we're bringing ingredients to people to make great meals. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so it's exciting, and we're, we're we're pleased to have the opportunity to share this story, and hopefully it invigorates people to look at their food and go, "There's a lot behind the things I get at the grocery store." Absolutely, I think that's like you go and you see a package, right? You you see a a, a you know a leg of prosciutto sitting in a deli counter, or even like you know pre-sliced that's sitting in like a refrigerator, and you pick it up, you put it in your bin, you take it home, you eat it, and you probably don't think about you know, Phil and Russ and the hogs. And for me, it's something that I take very seriously. I, I really, we have to think past the box, the jar, the packaging, and th- and really consider what we're eating every day. Um, because if not, the food's not going to be here in a, in a few years. But, but to your point, uh, someone, some wise person once told me that the, the greatest diet plan is one that you're describing. And that is, is that, you know, Every bite that you eat, if you consciously think about yep. where that thing, where that product came from, how it was raised, who raised it, the care they put into it. If you did that and you went to a fast food chain, you would probably spit it out. Yeah. And that's what we, you know, we, we do. And, and, and I think one of the things, I, I don't ask for much. One of the things that I ask as we have this conversation is that, that people do keep that in mind and, and respect and give dignity to you know, the animals and the people throughout that whole process that, mm-hmm. that really work and really paid attention to details and, and, the, and the, the kindness and, and dignity that they showed to the animals that, you know, when they eat it or when they cook it, that you think, oh, this is a substance, oh, this is life. This mm-hmm. is a, a, something that sustains life. And, and it's, not, a, it's a sacrifice for us. It, it, it is. It truly and, and is. It, and it's not just this fuel that you mm-hmm. stop by in a drive through and, and fill up. This is something that's special and you know i had you know people often ask me you know how can i even let my pigs go <laughs> and i say because of that i i feel i have a purpose mm-hmm. and i feel the pig has a purpose and i realize that we have to you know sacrifice for for humanity sure and it's healthy stuff and uh, we're, we're very proud of what we do i guess we, we i guess we're thankful for you inviting us today Yes. Because this gets everybody to pause for just a few seconds. Exactly. <laughs> and like you're saying, we sit down to dinner and look at the food mm-hmm. and go, there's a lot behind it. Yep. And if we respect our food, 
and take a little time to share the stories behind it. The true story. It's great. The yeah. true story. There you go. There we go. <laughs> and a, and <laughs> good community. Yep. Uh, it's awesome. Absolutely. High five, Russell. Yeah. We're not giving up. I'm now. feeling <laughs> the love in this room right now. The, the community. What is next for the two of you? I'm picturing oh. you guys like driving around in 2007. <laughs> so now, you know, 2023, what's the plan? I guess we got to look at that animal and figure out, okay, what other products can we make sure. that are in demand mm-hmm. and uh, make them at the highest quality and... See if we can have a little fun along the way. Absolutely. I want to try. You can please. I would like to be a taste tester for any you're, you're new wrong. products. <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> well, I know that, Phil, you're not a, you're not a chef, not a, not a cook. Um, but, you know, we always like to ask, what are the five pantry staples that you can't live without? I will tell you right now, okay? So I, <laughs> I will say. I'm not a cook, so I'll take some nice bread out. Toast it. Mm-hmm. I'll take mayonnaise, mustard, and pickles out, okay? Okay. A nice piece of cheese, three slices of true story ham. Mm-hmm. Put those together and cut it in quarters. That sounds like a really good sandwich. And I think I'm like a little kid and it's a treat. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Russ, what about you? Well, I, I feel know, like you have to say pork. I, I, I do. I do. <laughs> pork, 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 pork. Okay, we're done. <laughs> I'll have to want to make a comment on that. I... You know, I've I've been a I've been a bachelor all my life, but I, I have been a principal caregiver to my elderly parents in the last well, since COVID, I guess. And one thing that I'd always comment to my dad's heart doctor, who said this guy's got the blood pressure and the vital signs of a of an eighteen year old. It's consistently like his blood pressure was perfect. I mean, it was God a, bless him. And so I and I looked at him and I said, "It's the pork. I serve him at least one serving of our." True story, pork, every meal or every day, not every meal, but every day. And, you know, if, if you if read about the these healthy fats, it's in yeah. this pork. I said, it lowers blood pressure. So, Russ, let me ask you, you probably go to 135 and you let it rest a few minutes to get to 145, a little pink. Is that a perfect pork chop? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I do. I, I did. I turned out to be a, a really good cook. My, my dad's appetite wow. was ferocious. And. Of course, the doctor looked at me like I had four heads, but the fact is I'm, I'm very passionate about it. I, I mean that it's, it's, it's healthy. It's good. I mean, all those things, including his appetite and his, his, you know, you know, unfortunately my, my dad passed a couple of weeks ago at 97, but he had the, the best quality of life. Oh, it's fine. He's, he's with me and he's, he's so proud. He's so proud of what we've done. <laughs> Absolutely. Then, but he's did a big he ever talk to you about that? Like, oh, did you yeah. have like conversations about kind of like what he started and like what you've done? We, we did, especially the, the, the point about the, the economics of mm-hmm. it, the, the, the pricing system. And he, he knows, he know, he, he kept, he always kept track of the markets and he knew that sometime commodity pork was bringing, you know, half the price that our pork was. But we made this commitment to our mm-hmm. farmers to make sure that they didn't lose any money or they had the opportunity, not a guarantee, an opportunity to make some kind of a profit and some kind of a living wage every year on every pig. He was so proud of that because in, in his day, farmers were simply price takers, took what they had, took what right. they had to get the marketplace. So he was proud of that. And he, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm so grateful yeah. to what he taught me. And, and so proud that he made those comments before he passed. That's really, that's a good memory. And if I get to eat prosciutto every day and claim it's healthy, then I will be a very happy human. So 
You just gave me permission, Russ. Thank you. We're not going to let you down. No. <laughs> but thank you so, like both of you so much for being here. This has been a dream for me, something I've been waiting to, you know, to sit in this room with both of you. So thank you for your partnership with Chef's Warehouse and go to your, you know, nearest grocery store and or chefswarehouse.com for true story prosciutto. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Your Highness. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products we discussed on today's episode at chefswarehouse.com or at your favorite specialty retailer.